Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Tomorrow, it'll be five years since a fire broke out in a small apartment on the fourth floor of a tower block in West London. Five years since this moment. Fire Brigade? Yeah, hello, hi. In the fire, flat 16 Greenfield Tower. Sorry, a fire where? Flat 16 Greenfield Tower. The fire brigade are on their way. Within minutes, flames were roaring up the outside of the building until it was completely engulfed. 72 people were killed by that fire. Many more were injured and an entire community was ripped apart. For the families of Grainfall Tower, the pain is still really fresh. The fire didn't just cost them their home, it also cost them their family. I know it's five years, but it doesn't feel like five years. And it feels like, it still feels surreal like it didn't happen. Like I'm going to walk out and then I'll go down by Grenfell and it'll be there as it was. The fire revealed a litany of mistakes in the system that had left an entire community of some of the most deprived people in London at risk of losing their lives. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the Grenfell Fire, five years on. Stories from the Tower. Before we begin, I should warn you, some of the details you're going to hear today are distressing. Five years on, none of the horror of what happened that night has gone away. Back then, in the early hours of June the 14th, 2017, for those who were still awake, people who were heading home or who were out with their friends, for those who first saw that there was a fire in the tower, it was immediately obvious that a tragedy on an epic scale was unfolding. Look, at Grenfell Tower at like half one in the morning, fire, and that's getting bigger and bigger. People are gonna die and I'm scared. Witnesses described the horror. We saw people looking out the window, screaming help, screaming help, help, flashing their lights and everything. And now all those windows, people are gone. It was harrowing, torturing screams for help. Um, Young kids, and I could also, where the fire was now spreading, people were reaching out from the front window, trying to grasp a bit of fresh air, trying to breathe. They looked like they were struggling. It was honestly like a horror movie. 
By the morning, a media circus had popped up, with news crews broadcasting live from the scene, as people who'd lost friends, family and their homes tried to rebuild their lives in the shadow of the smouldering tower. The then Prime Minister, Theresa May, arrived on the scene and immediately announced an inquiry into the Grenfell fire. I am today ordering a full public inquiry into this disaster. We need to know what happened. We need to know, have an explanation of this. We owe that to the families, to the people who have lost loved ones, friends and the homes in which they lived. Five years on, that inquiry is still ongoing. Five years on, the bereaved families and survivors from Grenfell are still awaiting justice. Over two episodes, today and tomorrow, we're going to take you back to that night to reconstruct what happened through the stories of three families who lived in the tower. Tomorrow, we'll take you through the detail of what we've learnt from the inquiry so far about the companies who provided the cladding and insulation that helped to spread the fire. If you find today's episode upsetting, tomorrow's will make you furious. What really struck me in writing this, having covered the subject for a few years now, was just the devastating detail. And it's the detail that really brings it home. Not just the horror and the humanity and the heartache of the night, but also just how bad everything was that went before. I'm Martina Lees, senior property writer for The Sunday Times. And for the last few years, I have been writing about Britain's scandal of unsafe homes. Following the horror of Grenfell, the Sunday Times launched a Safe Homes for All campaign, investigating the scandal of flammable cladding that has left hundreds of thousands of people across the UK vulnerable. As part of a special report on the anniversary, Martina has been speaking to some of the families whose lives changed forever on the night of the Grenfell fire. The tower was home for the people who lived there. They were really happy there and they loved their homes. I know that like some people might say, you know, you're in a flat, you're in a tower and whatever have you and that, but it wasn't, it was home. It really felt home, it felt comfortable, it felt peaceful, it felt calm. We were happy. We were happy. One of the families I spoke to, the Wahhabi family, lived on the ninth floor. They had two children, Zak, who was 16 at the time, and Sara, who was eight. Martina has been speaking to Zak and Sara, as well as their mother, Hanan. Their house was very jovial, very jovial, honestly, the household. just just felt good being there. Upstairs, on the 21st floor, lived Hanan's brother, Abdulaziz al-Wahhabi, and his wife, Fauzia, with their three children. Little Midi was eight. He loved chocolate. And little toys, he had a whole bunch of them lined up in his hallway. 
they had in the in the hallway in Grenfell, just between the living room and the and the kitchen. There was a there's a wall. He had. Um, Supposedly had like a little shelving unit there, and it was just sort of his little collections of toys. And then the big brother Yasin or Yaz, as everybody called him, he and Zach were really close. He was a good person, you know, good character. He'd like help neighbours with their shopping. He'd hold door the doors open for people. He was such a gentleman. He always like, "How are you? How are you, Auntie? Are you okay?" Um, and he was a great cousin, friend, brother to like to my son Zach. And their sister, who was 15, Nahuda. Very much of a tomboy in so many, so many ways, but still was very maternal. She'd look after like Mehdi and like, oh, Mehdi, like, really want to be like the mum. And they grew up, you know, scooting and racing around the 21st floor landing, kicking footballs there. The families were always over at each other, having meals together and, you know, having a good time with their neighbours. That was our place. That's where we raised our children. That's where they played. You know, that's what we that's what we were as a family. The people living in the tower were they were working people, hospital porters and teachers and bus drivers and housekeepers. They loved living there and that was their home. We'll be hearing more about the Wahhabi family from the ninth floor and their cousins on the twenty first in just a moment. But Martina has been speaking to another family too. On the 20th floor lived Farah and her husband Omar Balkadi and their three little girls, Malak, who was eight, and then they had a five-year-old girl, who we cannot name, and I'll explain in a minute why, and their baby, Lena, who was just six months at the time of the fire. So all of them died in the fire, except their five-year-old daughter, who survived alone. She lost her mother, her father, both her sisters, her whole world. And their story has never been told in any detail. I've been able to tell it for the first time because her aunt, Samira, who lived near the tower and witnessed it on the night and who found the little girl in hospital, agreed to tell it. What was her life like before the fire? She shared a bedroom with her big sister, Malak. They had bunk beds. Malak slept on top, but they don't always end up like that. Often they would swap around or cuddle up together. They were both very excited about having a baby sister, Lena. Their mother, Farah, loved teaching them and about the world and talking to them about what was going on. And they had a big dress-up set. Malak was very keen on Merida, the Highland warrior princess from the movie Brave, and the five-year-old girl, she was quite a Hulk fan. She had this big green Hulk arm, quite muscly, and they would dress up and fight evil together. They were just little girls having fun. Their grandmother and their both Samira, their one aunt who I spoke to, and the other aunt lived nearby. So they were. it's a really close-knit community. But all of that... That happy family was about to change. Well, that was just a normal summer's Tuesday. That day, Farah went to fetch the girls at school, and on the way, Lena was playing peekaboo with her grandfather. The girls went to Taekwondo at the gym next to the f- tower. Farah was WhatsApping her sister Samira, who lived nearby, and 
Then she was waiting for Omar, her husband, who was delivering food to get back home just before midnight. And just before one o'clock that morning, there was a fridge smoldering on the fourth floor. And it woke the Uber driver who owned the flat. And he called 999. And that is how it started. Fire Brigade. Yeah, hello, hi, in the fire, flat 16 Greenfield Tower. So we have fire where? Flat 16 Greenfield Tower. The fire brigade are on their way. Quick, 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 quick. They're on their way already. Very quickly, the flames get out through the window and into the ventilation gap between the cladding and the insulation. Over the course of the previous two years, work had been carried out on the tower to make the building more energy efficient and to make it look smarter as part of the skyline for their neighbours in one of the wealthiest neighbourhoods in London. So the tower had been covered in cladding. And then the cladding starts melting. So inside the cladding was this highly flammable polyethylene plastic core so this melted at quite a low temperature, about 133 degrees. It drips down the building and the cladding panels were shaped like, well, it's called cassette, but it's folded. So it has a little ledge. So the molten plastic pools on the ledge between the panels, flows, and then it basically almost spontaneously combusts. Whoosh, and then... The fire spreads this way, sideways, downwards, and upwards across the building. And when you get over 600 degrees, the aluminium on the outside of the cladding also starts melting. And the temperatures in Grenfell Tower exceeded 1,000 degrees. As the fire rapidly spread, inside the tower, Zach Wahabi, who was then 16, was at home with his family on the ninth floor, directly above where the fire had started. He heard his father call out from the kitchen and they were smelling burnt plastic. He asked me, he must have said something, did you leave something in the oven? And I was like, no. And I've seen when I walked into the kitchen, smoke coming in from the, from the window side, coming in across the ceiling. I said, what, that's coming from outside? So Zach went to take a look, he stuck his head out the window. As soon as I open it, just flames just come up in my face. And his first reaction is just fight. I told them, like, I'm going, I'm grabbing my sister, I'm going. Like, you lot can come if you want. He grabs his little sister out of bed. When he picked me up, I was, like, half awake, so I could basically tell what was going on. And then during the stairs, while he was going on the stairs, I, like, woke up. And he carries her down the stairs, all the way to the bottom, past two firefighters who told him to go back upstairs. Zach ignored the firefighters and made his way out of the building. His parents were initially hesitant to come because they remembered a sign by the lifts that said, in case of a fire, you should stay put in your flat. We were told to stay put, so we were, you know, that was the policy, so we were going to stay put. Zach wasn't having any of it. If they'd followed the advice, it could have cost Zach's family their lives. But that advice, to stay put, was and still is 
the approach for fires in high-rise buildings. Because buildings are meant to contain a fire where it starts. It's not meant to spread between flats. And if it doesn't spread, you're safer to stay in your flat and not try and escape through a smoky stairwell. But that's not what happened at Grenfell. So Zach's parents then followed them out. So by 20 past one, which is about 25 minutes after the first 999 call, they were outside and they were looking up at the building and they saw the flames just climb really rapidly. Zach calls his cousin Yaz on the 21st floor. They'd just been out earlier that evening to the mosque and then to uh, American Diner for milkshakes. I've asked for phones and what to use. I've called my cousin. I've told him, like, yes, there's a fire outside. He said, cool, cool, say nothing, I'm coming down now. Uh, but they never come. Yasin, Nahuda and Mehdi, the children, and their parents, Fazia and Abdulaziz al-Wahabi, never made it out of the building. They all died in their home. No firefighter ever made it as far as their door. The furthest the firefighters got is one guy who came to the top of the stairwell on the 21st floor, opened the door and shouted if someone was there and didn't hear anything and left. They didn't have a chance. They tried to escape a few times themselves, according to their 999 calls, but they said it was too smoky, they couldn't make it out. At that stage, the smoke was so thick that you literally could not see your hand in front of your face. As the night wore on, the fire only got worse. Yasin and his family never made it out of their 21st floor flat. Just below them, the Belcardi family with their three daughters were also battling the fire. We'll find out how the night unfolded in just a moment. But first... I'm Paul Morgan Bentley, Head of Investigations at The Times. My job involves in-depth reporting and undercover work. In recent months, I've gone undercover to expose problems at Hermes, the parcel delivery firm in the run-up to Christmas, and backlogs at the DVLA, affecting millions of drivers. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On the 21st floor, Zach's cousin Yasin and his family were trapped. No help came for them. Just one floor below them were the Belcardis, Omar, Farah, and their daughters, Malik, eight, baby Lena, and a five-year-old girl who we can't name. They were all at home when the fire broke out in the early hours of June the 14th. The first sign of trouble for the Belcardi family was when Farah, the mother, called her sister Samira, who lived near the tower, at about quarter past one. And she said, there's a fire. And even after all this time, Samira still can't get the word fire out. She just, she really struggled to even say that to me. So, but initially Farah wasn't worried because she thought the fire was quite low down the building and far away from them. But Samira wanted to check that they were okay. She could see from outside her flat, she could see the one side of their flat, which was on the west face, which was opposite where the fire started. And that was not ablaze yet. She wanted to see the, the window on the other side. Their flat was on the corner. So she started walking around the building and then she realised slowly how big the fire is. She said you could just feel it fizzing and the heat. She described very vividly looking at the building sort of one floor at a time because she couldn't actually comprehend what she was seeing one floor at a time going up and up and that's engulfed and that's engulfed and that's engulfed but far as other window was still okay so she was hopeful she spoke to Farah a few times that night um, and in between Farah's on the phone to 909 as well but the operator tells them to stay put because that's safer this was so hard for Samira to recount we were both in tears when she described the last conversations that she had with Farah. Samira asked her, are the girls okay? And she said, they're just a bit confused about why they're awake. So we're playing a game about getting ready for school. Yeah, Samira, she's just said she's so proud of her sister for the women she had been that night. She was thinking about keeping her children safe right to the end. Having followed the advice to stay put, the Belcardis were still in their home on the 20th floor when the fire brigade finally arrived. Firefighters finally made it to their door at 17 minutes past 2 a.m. Four firefighters came. One of them was Agnel Fernandez, 
who spoke to the Grenfell Inquiry. Smoke was thick, black, acrid smoke. Um, so strong that you could actually taste the smoke as your BA mask moved with sweat. You could taste all I could describe as burning rubber, burning tyres coming through in your sweat. By that time, the smoke was very, very thick. You could not see your hand in front of your face. They couldn't even see the door, let alone their rescuers. As I opened the door, Farah shouts, my baby, don't forget my baby. But they just freeze in that moment. So one of the firefighters grab the five-year-old, smaller girl, and he starts going down the stairs. And his partner comes with him. And then the other two firefighters take Omar, the father, and Omar is told to hold on to the one firefighter's cylinder and the other one walks behind him. But no one walks with Farah and Malak and Lena. Lena is strapped into a sling on Farah's body. She is ready to go. So they follow behind them in the dark, in the smoke, and they make it half a floor down. So the youngest girl gets out of the building. The five-year-old. The five-year-old, yes. And she survives. She's clinging onto a fireman. The fireman describes very vividly how she just grips him incredibly tightly and he goes down the stairs as fast as he can and it, but then eventually she goes limp in his arms and he realises that she has lost consciousness because of the smoke and he just knows that he's got to get out as quickly as possible. They are carrying heavy breathing kits with 15 kilograms cylinder on the back it's hot in the stairwell, it's really dark, it's smoky, and there's debris, five hoses burning and towels and sheets and things people had covered themselves with and lost along the way. And the stairwell is narrow, it's, it's bare, it's just a bit wider than one metre, so when you walk past someone, you brush their shoulders. And at one point, they get kind of stuck behind firefighters trying to help another man. I continued with the child downstairs. I came to a bit of a bottleneck, three firefighters carrying one adult casualty, um, and I couldn't see a way around them. So I saw a firefighter then appear the other side of the obstruction. I now know that to be Vince having moved around me, um, and I passed the child back to Vince. But the rest of the family is still up, just half a floor below their flat. Omar collapses and the two firefighters with him try to carry him, but he's he's really tall and they struggle and they can't. And then their air runs out and they go down. The one stays literally until he's finished all his air, rips off his cylinder and runs all the way to the bottom. And the other one tries to find help, which eventually then do come. But it's half an hour later. And by that time, little Malak and her mother and her baby sister and her father's been lying on the stairs for another half an hour in the smoke. Nikki Upton, the firefighter, one of the two firefighters, finds Farah. I tried to move her and she wouldn't move. 
and um, I, with a bit of investigation with my hands and my torch, it became clear that she wasn't moving because her leg was trapped. So I don't know quite how she'd fallen like it, but her left leg had gone down between the banisters and her foot was tucked up under the ledge of the next platform. She got her foot stuck in the banister and she can't move her. And then she, she finds Malak. I came across the child who I, who I believe was on the platform. Literally, he's like feeling through the dark, so you can't see anything. And they take Malak and they take her, they carry her down. And she gets out of the building at seven minutes past three, which is 42 minutes later than her younger sister. She's alive. Dawn was breaking when Samira got to St Mary's Hospital where the girls were. Samira had already been to another hospital, couldn't find them. She had thought she glimpsed Farah and the girls on a stretcher at the scene, but it was just very quick and she wasn't sure. She had to wait at the hospital and then eventually the receptionist came back and she said, there's, there's an unaccompanied five-year-old girl in the pediatric intensive care ward. Samira goes to see her, visit her niece and she gets there and she sees her and she realises, yes, it's her, but where's the rest of them? And the little girl, she's covered in soot, she's stable but sedated. Um, asks, is, is there been a baby? no. Is there been another girl? And they said, well, there's been a girl that looks about 10. She turns her head and there's Malak. And she recognises her. Wow. But she's very poorly. And they tell her that her prognosis is not good. And Malak dies the next day. They moved the girls together, but only the younger sister walked out of there. It's horrifying. I mean, at the time when the news reports were emerging, you know, the, the fire brigade in particular were heralded as heroes. And, you know, clearly it was an incredibly tough job. They were trying, you know, you talked about the man who waited for his oxygen to absolutely run out before he ran down to get fresh air again and be able to come back in. Is there a sense now that had they worked differently, how much of a difference could that have made? Well, the biggest criticism of the... F- the emergency services was the fact that they kept telling people to stay in their flats and that advice should have been changed a lot earlier. In the control room, they didn't have a television screen, they didn't see what was going on in the building. The communication between the firefighters on the ground and the 999 control room and logging what people were saying on the 999 calls just didn't happen. People were not getting a picture of what was going on and so they kept telling the people in that building to stay where they are until 2.47 a.m. The inquiry has subsequently found that they should have changed that advice to get out between half past one and 1.50 a.m. So they lost about an hour, a crucial hour where people could get out. But because they lost that, it was too late. And people like the Al-Wahabi family, Zach's cousins, 
Nahuda, Yasin, Mehdi and their parents died because it was too late. It was too dangerous to get down the stairs. It couldn't breathe anymore. Something like 55 or 56 of the 72 people who died were told to stay put in their flats. The fire brigade had not trained people for high-rise cladding fires, despite knowing that cladding fires were happening across the world. At the time, the commissioner of the London Fire Brigade at the time, Danny Cotton, had infamously said at the inquiry... I wouldn't change anything we did on the night. I personally was responsible for committing my firefighters to their potential death in the pursuance of rescuing as many people in that building as possible. And we learn from every operational incident, but in the same manner that I wouldn't develop a training package for uh, a space shuttle to land on the Shard, you know, we would respond to it and deal with it in the same professional manner we do. She eventually resigned amid wow. fierce criticism. But yes, the fire brigade did not operate in the way that they should have on the night and they recognise that and they have since made improvements so one of the things they did is they got smoke hoods which is something you can help people escape out of the building because they didn't actually have anything to help the people to put on their faces to get them out you know through that smoke they have a lot more long ladders now they've trained over four and a half thousand people in high-rise evacuations and improved their communication with the control room and and so on For the fire brigade, lessons are still being learnt. For the survivors of Grenfell, five years on, they're still struggling with the aftermath. For the families of Grenfell Tower, the pain is still really fresh. Hanan Wahabi, who is Zach and Sarah's mum, said to me she feels like she's stuck in a time warp. You feel like it's yesterday. I know it's five years, but it doesn't feel like five years. And it feels like, it still feels surreal, like it didn't happen. Like I'm going to walk out and then I'll go down by Grenfell and it'll be there as it was. It's like I'm stuck in time. Hanan and her family of four spent a year and a half living in a one hotel bedroom. She divorced, which she attributes to having to live in a hotel room for Mm -hmm. that long. She still finds herself driving home to Grenfell Tower sometimes, even though they now live in a terraced house near it, but not near enough to see the tower. And when I was there, Sora just got back from a counsellor and Zak struggles with insomnia. His mum found him sleeping outside her and Sora's bedroom door like he was guarding them. And I find him sleeping. He's sleeping in front of our door like a, like a, like a guard dog. Bizarre. She's, what, 13 now? She is. And already seeing a therapist. Well, she has been since the fire. Do they have any remnants of their past life? Hanan told me that she had been back to the flat where they lived and her brother's flat on the 21st floor. Zach and I went in together. Our flats seemed very spacious compared to like, I've been to other obviously people's flats and and stuff. And it's quite spacious, you know, but when I returned that day, it just felt so small. It was, and this is, there's no walls, no internal walls. It's just open space and it felt so small. They have recovered a few things, 
She has a neck chain from her brother that was found on his remains. She keeps that in a velvet box. And on her fridge is a tagine from her sister-in-law, Fazia. She was really good at her cooking and always baking things. And a traditional Moroccan water jug. You can see the burn marks on it. And uh, Zak has a baby photo of him in their flat that's burnt around the edges in a drawer somewhere. And when you take it out of the plastic bag in which they keep it, you can smell, you can still smell the fire. And Sara has a memory box in her room. Just a little box and it's kind of got the keys to the house. It's got a necklace that I made for my mum. It's got marbles from Mehdi's house. Um, just because like he loved toys. And um, got like a little dog up there that was his too. As a fire didn't just cost them their home, it also cost them their family. In the aftermath of the fire, there was a groundswell of outrage and protest, seeking justice for the residents of the tower. The public inquiry into the fire started three months later, and five years on, it's still ongoing. Nobody, to this day, has been prosecuted for what happened that night. But the inquiry has revealed a catalogue of scandal in the companies who made the cladding and insulation for Grenfell Tower. We'll hear about them in part two tomorrow. Ultimately, that fire would not have spread as fast as it did if it hadn't been for what was on the outside of the building. And what the inquiry has shown us now is that that happened because of corporate lies amid a system that the government had created which allowed this abuse to go on about which officials were warned many times and they did not stop it. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, senior property writer for The Sunday Times, Martina Lees. You can read Martina's long read on the anniversary of Grenfell at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us tomorrow for part two. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.